Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Have you ever lived a moment in like slow motion where like time time seems to stop? My uh I had these fluted glasses from probably the um, 1800s, if not earlier, and they were, I only had six of them, and I loved them. They were so cute. They were small, and you could see the less than perfect glass. Uh, The old school glass had subtle ripples in the surface, and it wasn't quite so perfect as the glass classes um that they make today and i was um i had moved to another home and i'm unpacking boxes and i pull out a a big wad of newspaper and i unravel it and it's a coffee mug and i pull out another big wad of newspaper and it's another coffee mug and i pull out a wad of newspaper and i'm pulling the newspaper open and it's one of these glasses and I'm not prepared, and it falls. And there's this slow motion, oh, my God, that this is not going to end well. And sure enough, it fell to the ground and and broke. And now I have five. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, we only have one planet Earth, and... uh, to be mindful of it is going to serve us well. I'm really excited about tonight's episode. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. The topic tonight is, what is enchantivism? And our guest tonight is Calquist. We're going to bring him on in just a minute, but I want to go back to this, this conversation of... of um, breaking something and not breaking something. You know, I'd really (laughs) love to replay that moment and get that glass back. And when I look at the set and there's only five now, those five are even more precious. I didn't know more precious could happen because I'm very fond of those glasses that have been handed down by my ancestors. Well... Mother Nature isn't broken. Peace, peace on Earth, peace has never left Earth. There's huge, there's huge tracts of land that would take you hours to fly over where there's exquisite peace on Earth. Sometimes on social media I see people praying for, I wish we could have peace on earth again. But we have peace on earth. It's pretty much anywhere humans are not. (laughs) Um, It's not to say that there's not peaceful humans on the planet, and it's not to say that there's not humans on the planet living in harmony with nature. But nature is not broken. It's not. Nature is, I was trying to think of, Um, understanding how much energy goes into just the existence of nature. And it's got to be just trillions and trillions of watts or any unit of measurement you want to choose. Nature is is an immensely huge amount of energy manifesting itself in every moment. And our, our human minds, our Western minds, is but a drop in the bucket. Our our Western idea of what power is 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 woefully inadequate to even come close to nature, and that's a good thing because I don't think I need to tell anybody that humanity is scarring Mother Nature in in dreadful ways. Humanity is is the aspect of planet Earth that has come out of peace. 
humanity is the aspect of nature that is incongruent with itself. It's our it's our human um, persona, our human effect, if you will. And again, I'm not categorizing all of humanity in this category. I'm, in other words, there's there's cultures of humans on the planet that are extremely compatible with nature. The the idea of the Native American Indian um, before the Western civilization showed up is an example of that. They they lived in harmony with nature. But I wanna I wanna get to this episode, and I'm just I'm very delighted to have Craig as our guest tonight. So let's get to it. Again, the topic tonight is what is intentivism. And our guest is Craig Chalquist, PhD. Craig, who is a depth psychologist, professor, author, presenter, parapsychologist, and teacherpreneur, is going to discuss his latest book, Terrapsychological Inquiry. Restoring our relationship with nature, place, and planet. Yes, let's do that. Restoring our relationship with nature, place, and planet. Craig is the founder of World Renee Academy and its imprint, World Soul Books. He has also worked as a family therapist, lecturer, and group facilitator. In addition, he is a certified master gardener through the University of California Cooperative Extension, where he also earned a certificate in sustainable landscaping and a certificate in permaculture design. Join me in welcoming Craig to the show. Craig, it's so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about tonight. Well, let's start with the title. <laughs> I can read it verbatim. What is intentivism? <laughs> yeah. So um, I've had the privilege over a number of years of working with lots of nature activists, environmental activists, and uh, seeing what they go through, it's a tough job. It's an unpaid job for the most part. Uh, it's a dangerous job. And I've seen friends and colleagues over the years get burned out on what they're doing, um, physically injured, psychologically injured. And you know, then there's also people who um, don't feel called to the activist path. They just don't feel like it's part of what they need to do here. You know, So all of that, got me wondering, what is there for people who either have been activists and are transitioning out, are not activists and don't want to be, or are activists on behalf of nature and earth, and they want you know, some more tools to use? And I hit on the idea of storytelling because it's so powerful. And you know, the science tells us that persuasive storytelling just beats the heck out of debates and uh, arguments and all the rest of that, that stuff we use to convince people of our point of view, just beats it hands down, you know. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a word for people who go out and they tell these wonderful stories that perhaps they originate in injustice or rupture or whatever, but the stories are bigger than that. The stories actually help us be re-enchanted with our place in the world. And so that's where that word enchantivism comes from. And uh, there's a number of us who have, have uh, listed exemplars who, you know, they don't call themselves enchantivists because they they're not aware of the term yet, but we do. And I could go into that a little bit if you want, but um, people who basically are storytelling change in the world, really lasting change, not just superficial change. And uh, to, to watch them at work is a delight. Well, let's 
let's uh, put some defi- definition to terms so we're we're clearly on the same page. Enchant, enchantment. Um, when we talk about enchantivism, enchanted. Um, how do how do you see the definition of that term? So enchantivism is a way of making lasting change in the world. Um, you know, laws and policies and things like that have their place. They're important. But enchantivism tries to change the system itself. And it does this by telling re-enchanting stories about our relations with ourselves and each other and our planet. And then sharing our reflections and inviting other people to tell their stories and then letting those stories and that inspiration impel us into new responses to how things are. So I guess that's a good short definition of enchantism. And it can be, by the way, it can be performative too. It's not just about telling stories verbally. Uh, it can be imagery and humor and art and dance and all kinds of things. So using story as a perhaps a new new method, if you will, to, to bring about um, a new response with humanity, to tell a story as a, as a way to convey an important message. The, if, if, you, if you look at what 2020 did, um, it kind of turned the culture on its head. And then um, in the first part of 2021, there was kind of a a karmic tsunami or (laughs) uh, there was a lot of upheaval in the political arena of our of our human um, narrative. Do you think that after the 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 wave of 2020 and its effect on the culture, do you think people are more open to uh, a bigger sense of self or a bigger narrative, which might include uh, their relationship with nature? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think some people are. Uh, you know, when the news goes around and it says things like um, the pandemic comes probably from bats, you know, some animal that has been on the planet a lot longer than human beings and you know, that what we experience as pathogens don't affect these animals. But when they pass through other animals, which we buy and sell on the market, and then we encounter them and they infect us, there, there's a huge issue with this. Um, why are we marketing animals? Why are, why are we treating animals like commodities, you know? So I think some people read this, these news articles and, and they think, wow, what, why are we doing this? This is really a problem. And and there's no end to this problem. There's no end to what we can get infected by if we keep destroying habitat and using animals as things. And you know, So I, I think that some people are more open. But unfortunately, one of the things we know about human nature when we study, for instance, history and politics, is that there's always this group of people who go in the other direction and they get more locked down in their attitudes and they get more forceful about, no, we, are, we have to do it the old way. We have to do it the tried and true way. And I think those people are, are not more open, unfortunately. And then other people are. So it's, it's such an amazing time of contrast. I always think of um, the first line of that Dickens novel. You know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And it's both. Well, it's... Uh, um I've had a lot of guests on this show over the last decade, and the the Western mind, the the notion that we know best, the notion that <laughs> we're advanced in our technology, the notion that we know what we're doing, and for me, I see I see pretty obvious um, flags that say, well, actually, no, we don't, and. <laughs> The one that comes to mind is is the classic uh, commercial for some kind of drug on the TV, and they start rattling off side effects. 
and it's like, my God, my God, how can yeah. you say that with a straight face? How, yeah. how am I supposed you're looking at me as a consumer of this and the possibility mm. of these side effects happening to me, and you call yourself an expert or skilled <laughs> or knowledgeable, yeah. I can't buy it. When mm. You're so immersed in this culture. What are some of the, the not-so-obvious aspects of our, our, our human culture, our human society, that's having a negative effect on the planet that we might not be aware of? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's um that's something that a lot of us are looking at in terms of uh the whole marketing orientation of the West, you know, and and how everything is for sale now and how, how capitalism is unregulated and how when we want to help people with illnesses or job loss or homelessness, all of a sudden there's a certain block of politicians that say, well, we can't really afford that, but we can afford trillions for the war budget, you know, in the States. Right. So there's that whole, there's that dynamic too, you know. Um, one of the things I've been impressed with in, in studying history is that when things tend to go crazy like that, people are profiting somehow. They're, they're getting something out of it. There's something, there's a, a small group of people who are benefiting by, conditioning the rest of us to think that way, you know? And so in terms of the West itself, I mean, it's, the West is so complex and there's so many layers to Western culture. There are the parts of it that are very destructive to the planet. No, no question about that, you know? And yet there's also traditions. If we look at the religious side of this in Judaism and Christianity that are actually our nature honoring. So it's, it's a, it's a strange mix, you know, very complex. Well, the, the disconnect of nature, the, I mean, what I'm describing is common Western culture 101, asphalt, mm-hmm. concrete, square <laughs> buildings with small windows. I mean, we're, we've kind of disconnected uh, the masses, if you will, from nature. And mm. there's not really a, I don't see a dynamic where you can handle, a, I mean, a big city like uh, New York City, well, or Tokyo or Los Angeles or something like that. Some of them are so dense, like New York City, where it's, uh, there's a lot of vertical. By its very nature, vertical mm-hmm. requires a disconnection, but... I think of an apartment complex and and all you have is a small window and you can't see you can't see the um the sunrise the sunset it's almost like put a camera or multiple cameras up on the top and feed it to every single apartment so everybody can watch the sunrise everybody can i mean i I know it's it wouldn't be enough but how do we reconnect? How do we bring nature back, or I guess nature never left, we left. How do we <laughs> reconnect ourselves with nature? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I was in New York City some years ago teaching, and uh, I was stunned when I went up to the Empire State Building for the very first time I ever visited. And, you know, I went up to the, uh, not to the very top, but to that one, I, I can't remember the number, but it's that level that most people go to to see New York, you know. I was stunned at the number of green rooftops. And I work, you know, I work in San Francisco, which is supposed to be very progressive and ecological and all that, you know. But New York was just blooming with green rooftops, and they were growing crops, and they were, there were, there were entire orchards on roofs, and I went, wow, <laughs> I need to look into this a little more, you know. I think right. that human beings long for nature. There's that whole biophilia hypothesis that E.O. Wilson talks about, the biologist, you know. And I've seen that over and over, especially in children. Um, when we set up gardens uh, as, you know, as part of our um, master gardener training, 
we invite the kids into the gardens. And sometimes the kids that grow up in the kind of settings that you're describing or that are real being asphalted and concrete and all that, at first they're, they're sometimes afraid of the soil. They, they're afraid of getting dirty. And that wears off in about five minutes. So when they see everybody else, you know, just plunging their hands in and planting and composting and doing all kinds of stuff. So I have a lot of faith in that level of uh, human connectedness to the natural world. And I see it being reactivated all the time. So I think anything that can, that can do that is helpful, um, including bringing some of the nature into the city. There's this split in our culture in the West where, you know, nature's out there and it's good and city is over here and it's bad. And it's like, why not mix them up, you know? So that might be a way of doing it too. Well, I like that. Um, here by my house a few blocks away is a, a small lake. It's not very big. And maybe 10 years ago, I would take walks around the lake at, at sunset and take in the view and there are pelicans and birds and, you know, reeds and a, a very beautiful thing. And I noticed um, who I would pass, who else was at the park. And it was mm -hmm. a mother with a stroller and an infant and a dog or an mm -hmm. older couple walking around holding hands. This is quite a while back. And then... I moved away and I moved back maybe eight years later and I went and walked around the park and it was a, it was a whole new dynamic. It was like mm -hmm. the businessman on the, on the way home from work. It was mm -hmm. um, teenagers. It was, I mean, the, the dynamic, the, the chemistry, if you will, of the type of humans that were enjoying the park had shifted considerably. And I live about, oh, I guess, two miles from the edge of town. And here in Denver, if you go west, the edge of town is the Rocky Mountains. They go from yeah, that's right. to Mexico, <laughs> right? Yep. So mm -hmm. what really surprised me is that there were elk, two huge mm -hmm. elk that were bedding mm -hmm. down under a tree. And I thought, I never would have saw that 10 years ago. There, was, there wasn't that kind of caliber of wildlife. Something had changed. And I got thinking that when the humans, more, more of the neighborhood got exposed to nature and kind of perhaps recalibrated themselves to enjoy themselves in the presence of nature, it changed ah. the dynamic. You know what I mean? Yep. Mm -hmm. So I, yep. I wonder if we could design our cities to maybe have, uh, um, it's kind of like Central Park in New York, have um, yeah. broad, broad uh, trails like, you know, 100 yards wide that winds through the city that wildlife can can move through our city and still be connected to nature. You know what I mean? Kind of yeah. bring the vehicle of nature farther into our communities. Absolutely. You know, when, when Central Park was designed, um, it was designed by that kind of snotty guy, Olmsted, who had some pretty elitist ideas about how to behave in Central Park. You know, no games, no sweating. <laughs> there was this whole list of regulations, you know, like anyone's going to sweat, not going to sweat when they're out walking, you know. But even then, even so, he had the right idea, you know. He, he put a park right in the middle of New York City, and people enjoy it to this day, and I think that's a good way to go. Well, people are, uh, it seems like they're really stressed. Um, a lot of people are wringing their hands about what does the future look like. Perhaps our industry has been turned on its head with the lockdown. And nature is such a timeless example of mm. um, how to be peaceful, how to be 
I guess, comfortable in your own skin, so to speak. I mean, you don't you don't mm-hmm. go out. The farther you go away from humanity, the more relaxed and at ease <laughs> and harmonious nature is. And that, I think that's what a lot of humans are looking for, is that sense of ease, that sense of peace in their psyche. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, stress is such a huge issue, um, especially in urban settings. There's been a ton of studies about that. Um, I also think, too, that it's it's on a continuum in terms of uh, how much of that we find stressful. I mean, there's people who are just city people, you know, and they like it. And there's other people who are more country people. And then most of us fall in between somewhere. But um, I think we all need a connection to the natural world somehow some connection, you know, and it's so powerful. There's, there's a field called ecotherapy, which my friend Linda Bazell made me aware of years ago, and she and I published an anthology, um, or actually an edited volume on, on ecotherapy, and there is a huge body of research, and it's growing all the time, about how even minimal exposure to the natural world is good for us. It's good for us psychologically, it's good for us physically, you know, even down to things like if you're having surgery somewhere and your window looks out onto a park, you'll recover from surgery faster than if you didn't have that window. Stuff like that, you know. So it, right. it's the power of it is just incredible. Well, when you think about uh, Terra psychology and, and some of these um, arenas of study, what are the, some of the new uh, thoughts, the new dynamics that uh, people are entertaining as possible next steps for humanity? So um, terrorist psychology is a word that's been around since about the year 2000, and it started at uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute, actually, where me and, and a couple of other people were students. And the word came along later, but we were investigating how it is that the things of the world show up inside us. And, uh, you know, in in one respect, this isn't news. You know, humanity, I think, has always gone up on mountaintops to have peak experiences or down into valleys to get deep into whatever it is that we need to reflect on. We go to deserts to purify ourselves. Uh, I noticed with myself... um, when I, whenever I live near a creek or a stream, I, my writing tends to flow. You know? So parapsychology is a recognition that we're not separate from what happens outside of us, whether it's nature itself or whether it's the built environment, the freeways, the cars, the houses, and all the rest of it. You know? And then the other way around on this is that what we often take as our depressions, our complexes, our stress, very often reflects something amiss in the outer world. And uh, I, there's so many examples. Um, to Just to pluck one from my own life, uh, I was living at one time um, in San Diego County, and I was uh, all of a sudden kind of depressed, kind of flat, you know. And I thought, well, this is weird. I'm not really like this, you know. I don't know what this is about. And and so being trained as a psychotherapist, I used the usual tools for understanding what what that was, you know. Is is there a biological piece to this? Am I depressed about something that needs to surface? Is it family stuff or whatever, you know. And then one day I was out walking, and I saw this this golf course that had been almost overnight put in place of a meadow that I really loved. The meadow was gone. It was flattened. It was asphalted, you know, and my heart just clenched when I saw that. And, and I thought, this is why I'm depressed, you know? And so after that, the depression wasn't a problem anymore in the sense of I didn't, it wasn't mysterious anymore. I was reacting to something that was actually happening, you know? So Tara psychology says those are important connections to make those emotions that we have about what's happening outside of us are real emotions that we need to pay attention to. really like that example and it, it, the population of humanity is uh, like an exponential curve or 
So the development of cities taking over the outskirts of town and, and creating suburbia from it is kind of a natural order of things, I suppose, as far as um, the history of, of the population of humanity expanding. I mean, we're up to, what, 7 or 8 billion people now. Mm-hmm. I, w- I wonder if there's a, a change we could make in just the basics of how, like the house, the notion of a house. I, I mm. swear, square walls, square rooms, square is <laughs> um, just not a. <laughs> it's not a natural idea of a of a place to live, perhaps, because um, I don't see it replicated in nature for any other species. I, I, perhaps humanity likes it because it's so easily uh, replicatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to learn about, uh, or a lot to unlearn, you know, um, about how nature designs for pattern. How there are certain patterns out in the natural world that repeat over and over, and you know, the Jungians tend to call those archetypes, but they, they tend to think of them as mostly psychological, whereas uh, terror psychology says, well, they're, they're outside of us, too. The spiral doesn't just mean my own personal journey through life. It also means how a galaxy operates, the spiral galaxy, or how the water goes down your drain or whatever. And so there's been some publish, publishing in, um, I'm trying to think of the term, I think it's nature's operating principles, you know, how does the world actually do this stuff? And I think that's a good place to go. And you and me were talking a little bit before we started about biomimicry and Janine Benyus's work and how, you know, the biomimicry idea uh, is nature has been doing this for billions of years. It's way wiser than we are. So why don't we just apprentice ourselves to nature and figure out how to make echolocation, how to make, sturdy structures, how to, how to make homes that we can live in and things like that, you know. So there seems to be a lot of opportunity there. Well, I like that. You know, the, the younger generation uh, seems to have a mind of their own. They're not so attached to the old um, established ways of doing things. And, and to think <laughs> of humanity, humanity we're part of nature. We're not separate from nature. Sure. We're an aspect of nature. And how is yeah. it that, I mean, um, like perhaps Chernobyl or something where uh, traditional Western um, development is uh, totally abandoned and nature has no problem getting things back in order once the human <laughs> So... I guess what I'm saying is, um, do you think that I'm, I'm, there might be some part of our own psychology or our, our own pattern of thinking that we've disconnected from that had we stayed, I guess I'd go back to the Native American Indian, that had we stayed connected with nature as we developed how we, how we grew our communities, um, that would have allowed us to stay connected with nature and not have created such a disparity? Yeah. You know, um, you mentioned uh, the younger generations, and um, I don't know if she's listening, but I want to say hi to Kaya because uh, I have a friend who's eight years old who's totally on top of all this, and you know, all you have to do is check in with her about how she feels about something, and she'll tell you, you know. So it's like right. we have this whole culture of not listening to our kids. And, you know, Kaya's parents do listen to her, and they take her seriously. And they're like, should we do this? Should we do that? And she has an opinion about it. And I keep thinking, why don't we ask our kids, you know? <laughs> they, they're outside. They're inside. They're, they're imaginative. They're creative. They know what they're about, you know. I like that. I feel like mentioning a, a book or actually a series of books. Um, and the, the, there's a series of books. The first book is called Anastasia. And oh, yeah. 
It's written by Vladimir Magir, which is a, uh, I guess I'd call him a riverboat captain. But the story that he tells, it's not him. It's this woman, Anastasia. She talks about um, that if you grow your own food, when you go out in the garden, your body, as as you brush up against the plants, as you breathe on the plants, as you interact with the plants, they'll change their chemistry yeah. to become medicine for you. And, and yeah. when, I, when I read those books, my heart just exploded. Mm. It was, um, yeah. I could... I could, and and Anastasia lives so far off the grid. It's <clears throat> it's not even funny. She she lives in the backwoods of Siberia, of Russia, and this riverboat captain stumbles across her or, or meets her or whatever. And the and the procession of books is the teaching, so to speak, of Anastasia. And mm. had we not got disconnected from nature. We would have that kind of wisdom in our universities. We'd have that kind of wisdom in our um, in our culture, in our medicine, in our. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. It's, you know, one place we can get that too, and in addition to our kids and you know what environmental scientists and activists are telling us, we can also get some of it through story and myth and fiction. And I'm thinking about all the, um, we, in the West we call them myths, you know, other people call them traditional stories or sacred stories. And I teach that at the graduate level. And it, there are so many that tell us, this is how you align with the natural world and this is what happens to you when you get out of alignment, you know. Um, I was talking to uh, a group of people in Australia who are involved with Extinction Rebellion yesterday. And they said, well, do you have an example of that, like how we shouldn't do things? And I said, yeah, there's this great story from Korea where uh, a number of spirits of the land come down and they actually parade before the king at the court and they tell him that things are not the way they should be, that humanity has lost the language of nature and gotten out of balance. And the king doesn't know how to interpret the language of nature anymore, so he turns to the wise man of the court and the wise man doesn't know either, so he just makes stuff up, you know. So each time one of these nature spirits shows up, the wise man says, oh, the name of the dance that the nature spirit is doing is this, or, you know, it means you're a great king or whatever, you know. And so right before the kingdom falls in this Korean folktale, uh, the mountain spirit comes down and does this particularly frenetic, energetic, powerful dance. And the king says... Uh, so wise man, what's that dance mean? And the wise man says, oh, it means you're ruling exactly as you should and keep going and, you know. But what the dance actually means, the story actually tells you what the title of it is. The, the title of the story from nature's point of view is he who rules should understand the signs of the times and warn the people to flee in great numbers. <laughs> wow. So because right. no one understands this, the kingdom falls, you know. So what we call mythology is full of examples of this, you know, how to be in accord with nature, how not to be, and all that. So, and folk tales and fairy tales, too. Well, what about a, a reality TV show where young adults are challenged to um, create... Uh, dwellings designs that are compatible with, uh, harmonious with nature and over a period of time at the end I don't know what the metric or measuring stick would be used probably somebody not from <laughs> the city but but you talk about telling story and with the online streaming um format of television. I've worked in television for 35 years. Anybody can make a channel now. Anybody can make a program. Yeah, that's right. Anybody can make a series. 
if you were to take your um, return to nature through story and formatted it around a show, that, because when I, when I was looking at your credentials, you're so immersed, um, Craig, to me, the the passion of your heart is this this human interaction, this human narrative with nature and how to heal it and how to uh, make it more sustaining um, for humanity. Could you see um, a series of uh, that showed up on TV that would convey what you wanted to convey through story? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a great opportunity. Um, you know, when I was in therapy training, what they always told me again and again and again was you have to meet people where they are. So there's people in the ecological movement who would say, oh, we can't use capitalism to convey this, or we can't use business to convey this, or marketing or whatever, you know. And, you know, obeying the wisdom that was taught to me, I'm, my thought is we have to. I mean, we, you know... <laughs> That's what people are used to, right? If they're conditioned in that, in that lens, then we have to use that lens, at least initially, you know. So I think it's a great idea. I'd love to see that. And, um, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, I, I'm imagining that the, the uh, finished product would be some kind of collaborative, creative endeavor where people get together. And um, I'm reminded of this, uh, this uh, corporation called IDEO, that works in the Bay Area and here in California. And, you know, they bring together a psychologist and an engineer and, you know, people of different disciplines and, you know, an aesthetics expert. And they work on projects across traditional discipline lines. And so if we did something like that, you know, if we had an architect and a nature person and whatever, you know. But um, to me, the litmus test referring to what I was saying earlier, would be to have a bunch of kids come in and just ask them, what do you, what do you feel about this? Do you like this place? You know? And right. then get their opinion. <laughs> right. I, I think by and large, you know, even when they're raised in, in urban settings, I think kids are, you know, they're more tuned into the natural world because they haven't been taught not to be. Right. They haven't been polluted and diluted by... Um Western culture. You know, it's, I've been, as we've been talking, I, I've noticed that some of the reality TV shows where they they renovate houses, um, I, I recall the before and after shot. The before shot, mom and dad are sitting in folding chairs on the front lawn watching their kids play. And the after shot, they've ripped out all the lawn and, and put a gazebo and uh, benches and made outside much more inviting or, or perhaps a backyard or whatever. And it's always met with such a delight. And when they do a mm. follow-up, they talk about spending so much more time outside, which mm -hmm. is, of course, uh, a much more natural environment than four walls, you know. So that'd be curious. Uh, pitch the Discovery Channel or something like that. Write that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, we've got to change. we got to change what we're doing or um, we don't want to break something as, as magnificent, as majestic, as beautiful as as nature and our track record is uh, we've got some pretty deep scars on the in the natural environment on earth from from the hand of man so something's got to change that's why I've liked so much about having you on the show and talking about this yeah I keep thinking about how um, sometimes I go to history for examples and here in California, you know, the, the gold rush just devastated the Sierra. Um, you, can, you can drive up there today and see scars from hydraulic mining, and they're never going to go away. It looks like a moonscape. Um, they're never going to heal, you know. 
And at the same time, though, even though they were being persecuted, there were Japanese Americans in the Bay Area, in the Central Valley, who brought a whole different nature sensibility with them when they came here. And they said, no, we should appreciate what the cycles of nature give us, and we should be responding with our senses to what happens when the cherry trees blossom and things like that, you know. So it's a mixture, I think, in some ways. It's On the one hand, there's very destructive tendencies, and on the other, there's people who really get it, you know. Right. Well, it's, um, for me, it's like to take our hands out of, um, so often, like, we put fertilizer down and we spray our food with, pesticides and and chemically or naturally this is clearly incongruent with how nature would have done it and like yeah. I said in the beginning nature doesn't need anything from humanity we need yeah. what we need is is to uh, open up our psyche open up ourselves and, and get the inspiration from nature about how we can become more congruent with it. Yeah. You know, when we talk a lot about Western culture, which of course has its shadows and downsides, uh, sometimes, you know, to, to narrow in a little bit further on what's the problem, it's not just patriarchy, although that's a big problem, but patriarchy brings the sense of hyper-individualism. And when you're locked into that psychology, you don't get that you're related to everything else. And I think that's a huge part of this whole crisis. When you look at communities around the world that have a more communal sensibility and they realize that what you do is inside me and affects me and vice versa, you know, then everybody has this intrinsic sense of responsibility. And so they work together, you know. Um, I'm thinking about, of course, you know, the pandemic and things that are going on right now in this country and uh, what hyper-individualism is doing to us, um, literally making us sick and killing some of us. So it it seems to me that part of what we need to do is uh, get a sense of relatedness back. And I, I think we always have that. I think it just gets covered over by stuff, you know. I would... I would think we would reinstigate it in our our persona if we quit the um, individualism or, you know, where we sketch everything in concrete um, and kind of take a step back and and before we put the pencil down, tune tune in to what what we would want perhaps from our bodies instead of from our bodies. Well, what, yeah. can the li- what can the listener do in their own little ecosystem, in their own home, in their own uh, daily life? What are some, some takeaways as far as what the listener can do to, to get more connected to an enchanted activist? So part of the spirit of enchantism is about play. And, you know, we play with ideas, we play with practices, and we just see what happens. And so in the spirit of play, what I would recommend to people is that they play with the idea that they're always in a set of relationships with the elements, with climate, uh, with whatever's growing outside, whatever's not growing outside, the locale, the history, who lived there before, who lives there now, all of that. And and actually entertain the idea that, you know, this is part of me too. I'm not really separate from all this. And if I'm not really separate from all this, then maybe I should listen to these conversations that are going on all the time. And I think that can carry us into a different psychology where we feel connected with everything rather than separate from everything. So that would be one simple thing that I would recommend um, right off the bat, you know. Another one, actually a second recommendation, would be just to interact with animals and plants and, you know, the air and the water and things like that more often. My, my colleague, Linda Bazell, uh, who's an ecotherapist, 
when she works with clients, she often asks them, what's your schedule look like? And very often the clients will say, well, I'm indoors all the time, you know, and she'll say, okay, now that's where we have to make the first intervention, you know. If you spend an hour every day outside, does that feel any different? If you appreciate a sunset, if you wake up when the sun comes up, uh, you know, how do you feel different or do you, you know? So I think those are really simple but, but potentially profound things that we can do to get back in touch with what's happening in the world. I like that. Um, well, you know, the, the notion of a garden perhaps, because I think something happens when, like you had mentioned earlier, putting your hands in dirt, kind of uh, getting down closer to the planet, closer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just just more connected to the, the process of life as it exists in a natural setting. It's got to have an impact, too. Well, we've got about um, five minutes left, and I want to make sure the audience knows all about you. You've got several web pages and, and the work that you've done. Can you take all the time you need and convey to the audience um, your platform and everything it entails? Yeah, thank you. Um, so there, there's a website I would uh, point out as having a lot to do with the work that I'm engaged in right now. It's called worldread.com. And worldread is spelled world, but R-E-D-E, not R-E-A-D. So worldred.com. Uh, that, that word is actually the predecessor of our word read, like the word to read books and stuff. And the ancient meaning of read is to interpret. How can we interpret what's happening in the world? How can we make it relevant to what we're doing today? So if you go to World Read, you'll see things like uh, how to sign up for my newsletter if you're interested in the work I do and stuff like that. Uh, another place I would go is if you, um, if you go into Facebook, and I think the page is open. I don't think you have to actually have a Facebook account to access it. But if you go to facebook.com slash and then my last name, Chalquist, C-H-A-L-Q-U-I-S-T. You can find out about the latest trouble I'm getting into. Uh, I always post <laughs> things there about events and, <laughs> you know, things I'm, things I'm doing in the world. So that would be one place to look, too. So I, I think those two places might be the best way to, to do that. Well, I like that. Well, so if I'm a young listener... Um, and I feel a real connection with the earth, with nature. What are some of the academic uh, arenas that I could pursue that might um, help me create a career around that passion? Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> it kind of depends on whether you have a scientific or a psychological turn of mind. If you've got a scientific turn of mind, then there's lots of great environmental science programs out there. And I've actually taught a little bit at the University of California, Santa Barbara. They have this great school uh, called the Bren School, B-R-E-N, and they train environmental scientists. So if you like that kind of worldview, then that might be a really good place for you. They've got excellent teachers. Um, great program. I, I highly recommend it. So there's things like that. There's master gardener programs in every state too. Uh, so master gardener training involves scientific training about things like soil science and planting and integrated pest management and stuff like that. So, you know, that's useful. If you have a more psychological turn, it's a little trickier. Um, the program I teach in, I'm a core faculty member in East-West Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and we have a component that brings together psychology and environmentalism. It's called eco-psychology. So we teach that. That would be one place to learn about it in academia. Uh, there's another place, if you're focused on social justice and environmental justice, you can go to Pacifica Graduate Institute, and there's a program called 
C-L-I-E, Community Liberation, forget what the I stands for, and Eco-Psychology. <clears throat> That's a really good program. Um, there's a master's degree in Eco-Psychology at Naropa University. Um, there's different places to study, but what, the, the one piece of advice I would give you is this. Make whatever you study your own. And if you have to get bits and pieces from Antioch or from this or from that or the other school, then do that. But make it your own. Be true to your own passion, your own vision of what you want to do in the world. And don't ever deviate from that. And if academia can't meet you, then make academia meet you in the way that you need to. Nice. I like that. That's encouraging fresh input. Obviously, we need a new narrative. Um, it's um, so uh, very well spoken. Well, an hour can go by pretty fast. Do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? Yeah, just one. You know, we, um, you and me started talking at the beginning about uh, enchantivism. And so one of the things that enchantivism has taught me is that it's so important to have a sense of inspiration about what we do. We are flooded with news about what's wrong. And to, to some extent, we need to know that. You know, we can't be in denial about what's happening. But that's not enough to motivate most of us. So uh, the, the, the piece I would leave everybody with is what inspires you? And if you don't know, if you can't immediately answer that question, maybe that's where your quest should begin. Because in what inspires you is, is your response to the world and your role in what you need to do today. So that's, that's what I would offer, I think. Very nice. Well, Craig, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I have very much enjoyed this episode. Thank you. I have, too, and thank you so much for having me on. This has been a great conversation. We've been talking with Craig Chalquist, and the topic tonight has been, what is intentivism? You know, it's um, the Western mind. The Western mind wants to roll up its sleeves and stick its hands in things and, quote, fix it, unquote. And like I mentioned with prescription medication, sometimes we're proud of what we've done, but if we look closely at the wake of our choices, there's not any harmony, there's not any grace. Humanity packed its bags and moved off the planet for a hundred years. Mother Nature'd have no problem getting back to harmony with itself. In other words, we don't have to fix nature. We don't. We're not capable of understanding nature at the scale it operates on. We're, we we like to think we are, but the more we get our hands involved, the the less chance of a harmonious outcome. And what my point is here is that there's a lot of talk about the climate and global warming and whatnot, we need to just retract our, our human scarring, our, our human detriment to the environment and let it heal itself. It'll decide what it needs to do. We don't need to calculate some formula and say this is where nature should be. We don't need to run the metrics and decide that nature should be here or there or anywhere. We're not qualified to do that at all. We're rookies at best. The Western culture's, what, a few hundred years old, and nature's a few hundred billion years old. We're just, we're rookies. We're not, we're not here to run nature. That's not our job. Nature knows everything it needs to know to take care of itself. We need to just bring humanity back in harmony with nature and let nature decide what that looks like. It's, it's not our place to decide what nature should be or shouldn't be. Anywho, I want to thank you, the listener, tonight. 
I get so much joy with this uh, radio show, the hundreds of episodes that we've we've talked about the human persona, the power of the human persona, the human genome. There's there's so much potential in humanity that we haven't even scratched, and I love episodes like this that shed some light on what we might do to make our future a better place for all of us. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. I want to thank you for spending this time with us. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.